Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is a free app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences with friends and family whether you're documenting travel or you're keeping track of your favorite restaurants and bars, Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use this app to follow your friends and family, connect with them. You can follow your favorite artists, actors, uh, writers, chefs, whoever you want. And then when you build your own curations, you can pull in photos from your Instagram, from your Facebook. You can pull in locations from your Google Maps. And then you use tags and text to tell a story. From there, you share your curations to your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Google+. Sweet Spot wants you to be really thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Also, very important, it's free. You can download Sweet Spot for iPhone right now over at the App Store. Go do that. This is an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying to make things a little bit easier. This is obviously completely optional. How are you today? It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have a very good show for you. My guest is Mira Jacob. Her debut novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, is out there now from Random House. It, uh, it was published earlier this year, back in July, to great critical acclaim. And I had a very good time talking with her. You're going to hear that conversation momentarily. Uh, I got an email, a very brief email from a listener uh, who would prefer to remain anonymous, asking me if I script my uh, monologues. And the answer is no. But I put that no, I guess, in quotes. There's a little bit of scripting. I have some notes in front of me just to make sure I don't screw anything up, like the author's name <laughs> or the author's book or their website, stuff like that. And then I might have like brief like notes about what I'm going to talk about. And, and I'll write down things like, uh, you know, at the beginning of the show, I say, okay, everybody, this is it. This is other people. And then I do two things like this is trying to make things easier. This is obviously completely optional. I always write those down so I can remember them. But I feel like you guys don't really understand what I go through 
And, and believe me, I go through a lot uh, trying to put this show together in a way that feels semi-professional. And uh, you know how in movies uh, you'll sometimes see during the closing credits outtakes? Uh, well, I want to play for you like just to give you an idea of uh, the intense emotional demands placed upon me by this show. I want to play for you an outtake of an attempt at this monologue that I recorded just moments ago. And, and maybe this will give you uh, some understanding of what happens over here in this small room with this microphone. So here we go. This is the... Uh, out here, this is an outtake of uh, an attempt at the monologue from just moments ago. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is trying to be... F- fuck, I fucked it up. I fucked it up. I can't talk. My brain is fucked. So, <laughs> there's something a little bit angry about that. I feel embarrassed uh, to share that, but I feel like you need to hear it. I feel like you need uh, to get an understanding of what happens behind the scenes here at the Other People Podcast. I also want to talk briefly uh, about the Ebola virus, just scaring the shit out of everybody in the world right now. Is 2014 the worst news year ever? I mean, I know we we could probably say that just about any old year. And I know that uh, 2001 with 9-11 in the lifetimes of people listening to this show probably ranks up near the top. But I feel like 2014, cumulatively, especially since the start of the summer, has just gotten shittier and shittier. Uh, Whether it's the war in Gaza or it's ISIS, like beheading people on social media or Joan Rivers dying, Robin Williams hanging himself. Just feels dark. And now we have Ebola, which is affecting proportionately, uh, you know, a, a relatively small amount of people in the world. But it's just so scary because, you know, there's no that you're dead, basically, or you're you're really suffering, and uh, you have like a three in ten chance of surviving, I think, something like that. And if you don't make it, you go down in a really bad way, and it just feels sort of like The Walking Dead. It just feels like, uh, you know, is this like the zombie apocalypse? Is this people just like vomiting blood in the streets? And I don't mean to make light of it. I'm just saying. I have to make light of it almost in my head in order to not get too worried. And I'm trying not to, because I'll tell you what, uh, you know, the, one of the worst things about the whole thing is people getting paranoid, changing the way they live based on, uh, something that really is not a threat imminently. But, you know, I'm out in public, I'm using the hand sanitizer a little bit more than I normally do. Looking for hand sanitizer everywhere I go. <laughs> is anybody else doing this? Is anybody else like thinking like, oh, I feel a little achy. I don't want to be a hypochondriac. I don't want to be agoraphobic. I don't want to be a shut-in. I don't want to start buying cans of food and storing them in my place. Not going to go there yet. But I just think that, uh, you know, the world could use uh, some sunnier news, a little bit better news. Is there any way that we can rally this? Climate change. Can we do a U-turn? Can we improve? Can we get some solar panels going and some uh, peace? Can we get uh, like an, uh, a peace agreement in uh, Israel and pa- with uh, Israel and Palestine? Can we just do that? That would be a good story. Let's just do that for a starter. I don't know. It's just scary. 
And uh, are are you guys relaxed about this, or am I am I the one sitting here worrying? I feel like everyone's kind of thinking about it. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm trying to channel my audience. Am I channeling you uh, appropriately? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Mira Jacob. Her debut novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, is out there now from Random House. Had a great time talking with her. I hope you guys enjoy this one. And uh, go pick up her book, Support a Debut Novelist. It's one of the best-reviewed debuts of the year. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mira Jacob, and her novel, once again, is called The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing. I'm in my best friend's apartment, just a few blocks down from mine in Brooklyn, where I have taken to hiding because there are people that are repainting our hallway in our apartment. And it sounds like prison riot right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. I've had that happen. I've had that happen on more than one occasion, I think, with Brooklyn writers who are like, you know, taking taking my call in like a friend's apartment as opposed to their own because it's a better situation noise-wise or something. Yeah, I think that's just how we work. I think you just kind of got to be nomadic if you're in New York because nowhere is comfortable for long. So how long have you been there? Well, right now I've been here for 30 minutes, but I'm planning on staying here all night. <laughs> no, I mean, how long have you been in, how long have you been in New York? <laughs> oh, that. Um, I've been here for almost close to, let's see, 18 years, 18 years now. Okay, so you're kind of a lifer. Are you, are you locked in? You're going to be there forever? You know, I grew up in the desert in New Mexico in a really small town, so I can never think that I'm locked in. Yeah. But I have been here a lot longer than I thought I would be. So where'd you grow up in in New Mexico? I grew up in a little village called Corrales. Uh, population, I think, just hit ten thousand a couple of years ago. Oh wow! What was that like? Like we like is that? I don't even know what like what does it have proximity to? Is it proximity to Albuquerque or? Nothing? Yeah, yeah. At this point, I think because Albuquerque is sort of spread like a cancer, it's it's become a bit of a suburb. But when I was growing up, it was sort of this farming town way to the north and the west, and you just have to drive across blank stretches of Mesa to get to any civilization. And did you enjoy it? Was it uh, like a bucolic? I loved it. I loved, loved it. It, it was okay. a really, you know, the thing is, is you could be, there was, there was a good thing about being there, which was that there was absolutely nothing to do. So you had to have some imagination just to get through your days. Um, and that was, there was a lot of freedom in that. I also was just allowed to 
hang out and do whatever I wanted to do, which I don't think happens anymore. Yeah, you're not doing, um, you're not doing that in Brooklyn with a kid, like I'm, I'm imagining. No, yeah. I mean, with all the things that we – the hitchhike, you know, I learned to drive on a tractor. Like all of these things that I think of as rites of passage will just never happen for my son. I think his rite of passage is wearing, you know, gold pants on the subway. Well, or just like – I mean, the kids in New York do have like a similar – well, a, like a, a strange kind of freedom where, like, they start taking the subway around the city and having access to the city at, like, a, a younger age, right? Or, you know, 13, 14 years old. Or maybe that's not the Definitely. case. Definitely. But that seems to me like... No, I think they do, yeah. That seems to me like a kind of freedom that might, in some weird way, be the equivalent of, like, being able to, like, hitchhike and run around in the woods and... No? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think... I, I do think that there is... um. I'm sorry. Do you want me to pause because of the no? Keep going. I like I, 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 li- right. I like an ambient siren. <laughs> okay, because there's going to be a few. <laughs> um, so I think that the thing about growing up in New York is that I do think that you get this sort of this kind of moving around the world. You become very adept at it. You become adept with public transportation, and you become adept with seeing a lot of different kinds of people, um, which I definitely did not get in New Mexico. But I don't know that you have the kind of quiet that you need sometimes just to imagine things. I was just bored out of my skull. So I just had to imagine whole worlds and things that were different, things that were going on that were clearly not happening around me. And and I don't know that you have the pause to do that here. Oh, yeah. I know. Like like I've had this. I don't want to get too deep into this argument just because I've had it with myself and with people – on the show, I mean, it's just like it's the I age. Don't, old. I don't want to get into an argument you've had with yourself either. No, no one wants to be involved with an argument that I've had with myself. But <laughs> it's the whole like it's the whole where to live, you know, and like what are the ups and downs. And you live in Brooklyn, like you're like a writer, and being a writer in Brooklyn is like being a farmer in Corrales, you know, like everyone and their mother is doing it. It seems like and. I've had people say it's better, you know, who've moved out and have, you know, moved uh, down downstate Jersey or out into the country in Pennsylvania who are loving it because they feel like they can get work done and they're like kind of the only show in town and they don't feel like suffocated by like the constant throb of, you know, book stuff and people publishing and you know what I'm saying? Like it's getting a little distance. Yes, from absolutely. It. But then I've had people. No, I mean, who, I can I can definitely see that. And there's a whole book that came out about that, right? Like there's a whole book about people, about writers, I think, actually leaving. New York and finding solace elsewhere, which I totally believe is possible. But I like to I like to be in both of those states at once. I like to be longing for somewhere else and also deep in Brooklyn. Deep in Brooklyn, yeah. I'm. I'm this, I like to be like. I like to be where the chaos is, like temperamentally. And I, I, I guess I. That's a, a way of putting it. I like to be in a big city where things are happening. But then every time I get out, I'm just like, oh, you know, like. What am I missing? Well, you know, and the other thing is, is actually growing up in New Mexico, there were so few, I'm Indian from India, and there were so few Indians, um, just really, I mean, I knew all the Indians, um, but they were, I thought they were all my cousins because they were Indians. And, uh, and so I didn't really see other people that were kind of living the way my family lived. And I kind of grew up feeling like I'd landed on the wrong planet. And I like that my kid doesn't feel that. Yeah. You know, I mean, part of the reason that we chose the block that we live on in Brooklyn 10 years ago is because we walked to it and it was before my husband and I had a kid. And I said, wow, there are a lot of beige babies here. 
<laughs> and it's, it was true. Like everybody, there was just this beige baby just milling around this block and every kind of interracial combination that you could think of. And I just thought, you know, you're not going to feel weird here. No. He's not going to feel like the only one. My kid's, and, a, my kid's a whitey. She's going to feel weird in 20 years. She's, you know, that's the way, yeah. that's the way things are going. And I mean, it's much more multicultural. You should, you should work on that. Yeah. I know, I know right? <laughs> Gotta, I don't know what you're going to do there. Just lots of bronzer. Yeah, exactly. So, but <laughs> a lot of uh, you, your last name's Jacob. So, your parents, like one parent, is Indian, or both parents, or what's the? Both parents are Indian. It's a Syrian Christian name. Oh, it is. Okay, okay. I don't, you know, I, yeah. don't, I know so little. So, Syrian Christian. So, Christians from the Middle East, but who wound up in it's India? The, well, essentially, the Syrian Christian um, is they call it Syrian Christian because Syrian is the language it came to in India, um, and. Yeah, apparently it started in 50 AD. If you ask my relatives, that's when it started. Um, it's a very old branch of Christianity. And so the names, there's kind of a rotating, uh, I don't know, 30, 35 names that I that I will, I will hear and I will know that somebody is during Christian. So Jacob is one of them. Matthews is one of them. Um Koshi, you know, those kinds of names. I always know that those are Syrian Christians. We are Syrian Christians. And then, like, culturally, though, growing up in New Mexico, like at home, was it like like Indian? Was it like really culturally Indian, or were your parents like? When did they? When did the family? You know, my parents. America? Yeah, my my parents arrived in 1968. Oh, okay. uh, so you're first. You're first generation. Yes, okay. first generation, and my parents. Um, they arrived, I think, the day after Martin Luther King was shot. Oof. Okay. 1968. Um. Anyway, they, um, yeah, so they came and they flew into New Mexico because my dad was doing a residency. And of course, the idea was that he would do his residency and then he would fly back to India with all of his good knowledge and he would stay there and have a family. But the. Like a, med- a, medical, really like a, a medical residency? He's a doctor? Mm hmm. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, he's a heart surgeon. Oh wow! Okay, and that oh, didn't really happen. I was thinking yeah. that I was thinking that he was like a farmer in Corrales, but that's totally wrong. He was like, oh yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> I grew up among many farmers in Corrales, farmers and and I should also say and like intellectual hippies because it was a little bit of an outpost, um, and in, in New Mexico kind of has these great communities that that kind of go that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was a he wanted space, you know, in India part of the reason they moved um, out to the middle of nowhere when they were already in the middle of nowhere. Um, in India, it's very crowded everywhere, as you would imagine. Yeah. And I think when they got to the American West, they were just agog with how much space they could get, right. how much space they could find, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. I have a buddy. I have a buddy. I've never been to India, which is uh, disappointing to me because I've always wanted to go. But I have a buddy who went uh, a couple summers ago and like I was so envious because I, you know, I have a young child. It's way harder for me to conceptualize and execute like international travel than it used to be. Um, but I just when he went, I was like, I want to know everything. And we had this app where he could like, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Viber, but uh, you can call and you can like text and like, you know, you can it's right. You know, it's free and it's easy. And I was getting like all these great videos from like Delhi and. But it overwhelmed him. Like he was like a seasoned traveler, but he went to India and. It's like, it's a lot, you know, the poverty and the crowds and the, you know, that it was just from, you know, from his messaging and the things that I was hearing, he was completely like mind blown. Yeah, I think that is, I feel like that's a pretty um, common experience in India because it's, it's 
a little bit like a blitz for every sense. You know, there's there's a lot to hear, there's a lot to see, there's a lot to smell, there's a lot, and then you're trying to kind of intellectually comprehend what's going on around you, which a lot of times is just impossible. Yeah. And um, and it's a real overload, especially when you come from America, which is sort of these distinct spaces and the tumult of everyday life is really at a minimum. I mean, the most that you'll get is a south, you know, like a subway in New York. That's kind of the most jostling you'll get, and that's kind of you know, in India, that would be called a pretty orderly experience. So, <laughs> well, he's from Denver. You know, so Denver's like, you can eat off the side. Oh yeah. No, he was, yeah. I don't even know how he survived. Yeah. He, like his head almost, <laughs> he almost imploded. So I take it you've been to I India. I totally believe that. You've been to India like many times or how many times you've been over there? Yes. Many, 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 many. I go back about every other year. And what part of the country are your parents from? They're from the South, uh, Kerala. Okay. Like that, and I only and, I have limited understanding yeah. of Kerala, but I remember it from uh, God of Small Things. Uh, I always remember. There it. you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, the very same Kerala, though. You know, they were. I think they grew up in that um, Kerala, and India really changed a lot as as they were here. I mean, it's funny because you tell me about your friend and all the videos he was posting, and that makes sense to me. But when I was growing up, and we would go to India, it was literally like landing on another planet. It took us. 36 hours to get there yeah. and you'd always arrive in the middle of the night and you know whether or not the lights were working uh in various parts of the city you know was kind of crapshoot yeah. and you know it was just it was you were just dropping into another planet and also because because videos of each culture weren't so readily exchanged because people didn't have this kind of access to each other and how there wasn't this kind of communal language of blue jeans and, you know, milkshakes, which I think is just what the world is at this point. Things were really different. They were different in a way that they kind of no longer are. Yeah. And that people go and they seek out kind of looking for the authentic experience now. But that, uh, you know, the authentic thing has, has morphed a lot well, just by everybody rubbing elbows. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. It's, I mean, I'm just thinking of my buddy going over there and, of course, getting sick because the food and whatever he had a... He was eating street food. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And just, like, got into some trouble in that way. And then, like, you know, for the second two weeks of his journey, I remember him, like, he was just eating, like, fast food and drinking Coke. Like, he was terrified to eat because he didn't want to get, like, the Montezuma's Revenge again or whatever. But, um, you know, it's just funny to go all halfway, yeah. halfway around the world and be eating, like, packaged cookies and Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> that is really sad. You know, I always, I always go through this moment when I get to India where I think I'm not going to do it to myself this time. I'm not going to do the street food. And then I give up in like within 15 hours. I'm like, Oh, forget it. Whatever. Yeah. I'll just deal with whatever I get. Yeah. You just... Um, yeah. And I do, I just deal with what it's worth it for me. For the bail period alone, it's worth it. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's cool. And then, um, like, uh, not to get like off into politics too much, but is it Modi? He's the new president. We, we like him. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what is, um, I will tell you this. I don't, yes, he is the new president. I don't know enough. I have, and I have battling relatives um, telling me two completely different things. So I do not feel qualified to make a call on that yet. Right. Neither do I. So I just, I was hoping you could be an expert, but. <laughs> um, no, I cannot be an expert on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but then like, the, I have, but you know, I just, I guess like the context for me when it comes to, I mean, cause I read about it. I read about the election. I followed it a little bit and I've been, you know, I think he's coming over here actually to the States or he's here today or something. But, 
Um, it's, it's just India to me, you know, as a, as a huge democracy, um, but also one that has like, it, it's just got so much uh, cultural variety. It's got so much poverty. It's got so much history. Um, but it just, to me, seems like uh, a lens through which I kind of view, um, hu- I mean, this is going to sound corny or weird, but like humanity in a way that I don't necessarily hear at home. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, the, like, how do you, how do we do this? Like, how do we make life livable for people? How do we corral disparate cultures? I don't know. I don't know if I'm even making sense. Does that, do you understand what I'm saying? No, but but keep going. Like what what is what are you, what are you saying? I, I, I Let's think try like, to get to it. I have like this limited lens, you know, like everybody's sitting here at the states with their computer, where you're seeing video, and then you're hearing from people who travel there, and it's like, oh my god, I had this incredible mystical experience in the Himalayas, or oh my god, like I went to such and such a you know a town or village, and you know, got did yoga, or then I went to Delhi, and it was crazy, and you know, uh, or I'm looking and uh, I'm reading an article about the poverty and. I guess it makes me think about like the world uh, and how we, and then I think about the fact that it's this gigantic democracy, which I don't think uh, this, you know, we in the States maybe pay enough credence to. And I I think to myself, like, how do we make it work? I think that's kind of what that last election was about. Like, how do we fix things? And I don't know. I shouldn't talk about this. Who's the we in this? Uh, humans. Who's the we? Humans. Humans. Like I just think of like the problems of uh, the world and of humanity, and I just feel like they're in maybe higher relief. Like they're more in your face in India. Like I feel like in the states, like we were talking about earlier, if you live in a city like Denver or you live in even Brooklyn, like the most hardcore human in your face experience that you might have would be like the subway. Whereas I feel like as a traveler, like especially like a Western traveler with li- minimal exposure, might go over there. And be like overwhelmed, you know, like in, on a variety of levels, but one of which just be mm-hmm. at like the sheer humanity. Do you know what I'm saying? I do know, but I think we're kind of, yes, I, I do know what you're saying, but I don't think I don't think we're the same we in this equation. I do understand what you're saying, yeah, but I'm not sure that that we would approach this because I'm not sure that that what I would take to that situation is the same thing that you're taking to that situation. Sure, sure, which sure. is which is you know just to be expected, and that's that just has to do with cultural experience, but I'm not, my experience of India is not the yoga enlightenment. Look at the crush of humanity. That's not the way that I see the country. Right. Because I see it through the lens of family and tradition and heartbreak. And to me, there's just something completely different different. there. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So So, like when you say uh, like, you know, heartbreak and tradition, like when you go back, what's it like for you? interesting um what's it like when i what's what you know you just brought up a good thing right you just brought up modi and like what do you think and um it's interesting because i always feel as i just did when you asked that question that i cannot answer questions about the country with authority which is funny because there are so many people that are willing to answer any question with authority but i think something very specific happens when you are of a country but did not grow up there, which is that you always feel a certain inauthenticity trying to claim knowledge about it. Right. Um, and that's and and so the, so that tiny interaction that we just had there, I would say, is is one that plays out constantly when I'm in India. I do not um, feel like I'm allowed to have an opinion. Yeah. 
yeah, and are. that's not because I'm a woman and because I'm being silenced or any of the like ridiculous things. It's it's literally because I have always been a watcher when I get there. I've always been both um, too much of the place and too little of it to find my sense of self there. Yeah, um, I, I get so that. it's complicated. Sure, I mean I'm Italian and like I go to Italy and it's like. I got nothing to say, (laughs) you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I guess second or third generation, but I don't have, I have kind of a paltry understanding of the culture and the politics, you know, so. Yeah. And I do think, I do think that, um, as far as, I mean, I haven't been obviously second or third generation, so I don't actually know what that feels like. I do know that the first generation, it really is a bit of a, it's a heartbreak We're we're, we are this living proof um, that the family has been a victim to diaspora. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge thing. Sure. Um, and that the family will never be whole again in the way that it was. And that traditions have been abandoned and that values have shifted. Right. And we're kind of a constant reminder of that. So there's a lot of friction in that that sort of moves beyond, you know, I don't really understand all the traditions here. There's also a lot of just, when I say heartbreak, that's what I mean. I think I'm a reminder of what didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. So um, you grow up in your whole childhood in New Mexico, like your parents planted there and that's where you stayed? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was a, it was a fun childhood. Were you a show, like, were you a writer from a young age? Were you one of those people? Or did, <laughs> did it come, did it come later? No, I mean, I was, it's funny that you asked that. Cause I was just someone, someone else asked me that. Like, when did you know you were a writer? Um, they asked me that the other day and I was like, when did I know it or when did I admit it? Because those were two <laughs> different things. Right. Um, so when I was, when I was young, cause you know, Indians, I mean, my, when you don't, but, uh, but it's, uh, the thing where, where my parents were like, it would be wonderful if you're a doctor or an engineer. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Right. Um, which and, I, which I think, like, I which think, I think like, I mean, obviously that, that could be an Indian thing, but I feel like it's also. Um, like a, a first generation immigrant oh, totally. thing because my yeah, dad, everyone's just looking for safety. Yeah. My dad was, uh, I guess my dad was second generation, but I mean, he had that and like, you know, go be a doctor and you know, that whole thing. Yeah. I mean, the big joke in my family is, um, you know, even I, I think my mother has been thrilled, um, you know, just on a personal level with the, the press and the, um, everything else about the book. But I swear that if I were to say to her, Tomorrow, actually, Ma, you know what? I'm I'm just going to be a doctor. I think she'd be like, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> I always knew it. Like, <laughs> There's still time, Mira. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> you can rethink everything. <laughs> yeah, mid-course correction. It happens. Uh, in fact, I, sp- I, I spoke to a guy on this uh, show who, at like the age of like 42, was becoming a neurologist. Um, like total shift, you know, so it can be done in case it's in the back of your mind, but... Um, yeah, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, you know, I mean, he could become one and then just never practice. That's right. True. I mean, that's yes. at that point, he'd be like 67 and people would be like, I don't I don't know that I want you. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want a rookie. I don't want a rookie <laughs> operating on me. I don't want to I don't want a 67 year old rookie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. Um, OK, so knew you were a writer versus admitted you were a writer. That's a nice way of putting it. But like, when did you know? Second grade, really, and like how did second it... grade because we made these um, we made these books. I had this really cool teacher, um, and she had us do a project where we made blank paged books 
And I have never been so excited to see something in my life. Like the idea that, that there was an entire book waiting for me to fill it was like beyond anything I'd ever, I would go to sleep at night and think of like the other thing I could put on page three. Um, and it was really exciting. It was really exciting. And so then, and I was just, and then I was writing all the time after that. And your parents knew, or was this something you kind of like, it was kind of your thing and like flash. They knew that it was, yeah, they knew that my mother was in her really funny mom way. Um, she's trying to help me out of it, trying to help me see past it. Um, where she was like, you know, it's it's wonderful that you write. It's really amazing if you're good in math. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I was like, I know, I know, I feel you, mom. But I, you know, I didn't. Um, and I think that I think that I think that my parents, like many parents, were sort of raised to believe that there are jobs that you can take um, that will be more helpful to you and will help you provide for your family. And then there are completely insecure situations that you can walk into and be tortured by forever. And they weren't wrong. You know, they weren't wrong about the insecurity in the writer's life. They're actually quite right about that. Right. It's just that at a certain point you have to look down the barrel of that yourself and say, am I going to live with that? And I do. And I have, I have for 18 years living in New York. It's just what it is. But I understand why they were worried. Sure. You know, I get sure. that. No, I mean, if my daughter came up to me tomorrow and said, I want to write books for a living, I'd be like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, I know too much. You're it's, in for it. Yeah, you're in for it, unless you get super lucky, you know, and uh, that's, a, that's a hard truth, you know. And I think that when you think about the, God, who knows how many people are trying to do this versus how many people actually make a good living at it, um, you know, it's probably no big secret that it's a very small number. I know. I always wish, I always say that I wish that somebody in college would have given me a spreadsheet that said, if you want to be a blank, you will make blank per hour. Just, just that, just so I could have assessed my options, at least in that way, very concretely before kind of embarking on this life. Cause at least I would have been like, well, I did choose, I did choose the 25 cents per option hour. You know, like <laughs> 25 cents might be generous. I mean, if you really, if you really <laughs> amortize that stuff, I mean, my God, exactly. you know, so, um, so, you know, that's sort of strange because you have uh, a father who's a heart surgeon. I don't know what your mother's, um, a realtor, a realtor. Okay. But you know, like, I'm always curious about like the genealogy of the writerly stuff and, um, every once in a while, like I'll have a, you know, I'll have a person on the show who, you know, yeah, dad was a, a doctor and mom was a, uh, scientist and they produced a person who likes to write short stories. <laughs> um, but do you have, like, do you have anybody in your lineage who wrote or do you, can you trace like influences familiar in a, in a familial way? No, nope. Uh, nobody wrote, um, I mean, there are people in the extended family who wrote Arundhati Roy being among them. Um, Wait, but that's Ar not Roy, I knew. You're, you're related yeah, to her? Yeah, because she's Syrian Christian. So we're, we're related. Uh, I, I knew the exact way. Someone told me it's one of those very, like, her uncle is somebody's cousin. It's that kind of thing. It's like yeah. a very distant but traceable phenomenon. Okay. Um, that makes sense to me. That's a that, that, just call it a phenomenon. It's her. It's her. <laughs> you, you guys are connected. Exactly. Somehow. Yeah. Exactly. No, yeah. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, that wasn't, I didn't, I, I obviously have never talked to her in my life. I'm a huge fan, and I think she's incredible, and I particularly like her activism. Um, yeah, yeah. But, she's, she's ballsy. Oh, she's a force. She's a force um, and, and very interesting. 
But um, no, there were no writers in the family. There was there was just a lot of trying to be American. So, and that's that's something that fills you with the kind of unease that makes you need to write. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, that's the other thing too is that like. Um, you know, talking to my dad, I was always, you know, cause me, I'm like, God, I really wish I could was fluent in another language. That's one of my big insecurities. And I'm always like, dad, like, why didn't you, you know, you don't speak Italian, you know, like, but your dad knew how, like, why didn't they teach you? And he's like, they didn't want to teach us. They wanted us to speak English and be Americanized. They didn't want it to be, a, it was like a disadvantage to like, you know, show any of your heritage in that way. So like when you talk about wanting to be American and assimilate and all that, was that kind of the deal for you too? Yeah, my parents, um, they speak Malayalam, and they did not teach my brother or I. I understand just enough to understand when I am being talked about, um, though I could not <laughs> tell you like what people are saying about me. It's like the, it's like the, wor- it's like I, the worst possible set of circumstances. Like you- exactly, exactly. I'm in a room, and I understand that like there's, you know, the family is saying something, and it could be totally benign, and it could be that I have like the brain of a donkey. I would never know. I would never really know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's, that was definitely part of, of, you know, what we were struggling with. And I think at that point, you know, it was the eighties and there wasn't this kind of move toward understanding diversity and, you know, people that wanted to talk about India wanted to talk about their particular fixations with, you know, mysticism and like, you know, are did you, you not, do drugs with the Beatles? You are, know, are you that over that? Kind of, are you over that? Are you over the whole yoga? I mean, does that stuff? I mean, because yoga in and of itself, it's fine. It's a good thing. It's healthy. It, you know, oh, it's totally a good thing. But, it's a great thing. But are you over the whole like mystical? And you, you're over it. Like that stuff. Does that bug the shit out of you? It was I, absolutely. I mean, I'm over the idea of white Americans finding salvation in something that they do not want to understand you know, in like in any other way than it helps them accessorize themselves. Right. Um, that's exhausting. Like Lulu. That's exhausting to be somebody's throw pillow <laughs> yes. and somebody's, you know, way into centering. It's just absolutely mind boggling to, to be on the other end of that constantly. Well, and just like um, the whole thing so, where people are like, you know, I went to India, you know, it's like, I, you know, yeah, no, or you know what I always get or what I used to get, um, more was uh, was people, especially men, saying, um, you know, I just really feel a connection with you. Oh, God. I really think that you understand things about me. I'm like, I don't understand you. <laughs> you know? Don't talk to me. <laughs> like, Go like, away. Or like, I really, I think that you, I think, what did I get? When I was in San Francisco, I had a guy sit down next to me in a bar and say, I think you know what I'm trying to tell you. I think you know things about me that I don't even know about myself yet. Yeah. But I'm willing to try. See, th- this and I is... just was like, "Please go away." Yeah, like, no, just, I actually just got up and left because I was what? like, "I don't know what you're it's saying like, to me." Is it a San Francisco like spiritual type guy, like a Burning Man kind of guy? Type yeah, guy? yeah. But they're like they're tucked in everywhere. They they surprise you. They jump out of perfectly normal people in suits. Will suddenly hit you up with their mystical fantasy. Right. And you're like, "Wait a minute." We were just having a totally normal conversation about groceries, and now you've gone to save me? <laughs> well, I, you know, it's making me think, like, this is really awful. But, like, I remember in college, I went to, you know, I was in Boulder, which has got its hippie thing. And there's, like, this, oh, yeah. like, you can fit. I mean, there were, like, there were, like, multiple Tibetan gift shops in Boulder. You know, like, multiple, you know. Yeah. And yeah. lots of that sort of, like, you know, Buddhist uh, thing. And, uh, you know, in, in, in again, in and of itself, no big deal. It's good. But... 
I remember there were like a, there was a guy that I was I remember being at a party and a guy was like claiming that he was like an eighth Cherokee like Indian as a way of like yeah. as a way of like co-opting a certain like mysticism and like enhancing his allure. Of course. Do you yeah. Know, like that shit is creepy, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, everyone, I mean, that's the big joke. I think Sherman Alexie writes really brilliantly about that, about how everybody is like one eighth Indian, you know, one eighth Native American, unless it won't get them the job. You know, it's like, no, 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 I totally have that. I have that in me. I have that. I yeah. have that secret part. And it's like, no, not, no, no. Or, or you might, but you don't, you know, it depends on how you're, how you're living. How do you live? with what you are and that's different for everybody and obviously that's not quantifiable by you know your blood or your skin tone and things have many different shades of how they work out in the world but I will say that being a brown woman with a certain you know quote-unquote mysterious cast to my features (laughs) makes me the recipient of this absolutely baffling non sequiturs like just i never know when people are going to come out with some other thing about their soul and their yearning have I I done, have I like, done, i'm not that person have i done that yet am i okay <laughs> no do you want to try <laughs> no i'm just i'm already I, like i'm already like self-editing I'm, i already feel bad about talking about <laughs> india earlier i'm already like oh shit yeah, but my job right now is to terrify you yes i just walked right into it i was just trying you know <laughs> It's hard stuff. It's hard stuff to talk about. It is hard stuff to talk about. You know, I think. I believe you. No, I know. I know. You know what? My friends and I, we have, I mean, part of what I like, frankly, about Brooklyn is that everybody is from somewhere. Nobody gets the, like, the untouchable status. Nobody gets the prize status. Everybody's from somewhere, and it's a little bit, people are a little bit rougher with their, you know, with their assumptions and their ability to be schooled. You know, I feel like there's a lot of, there's a nice thing that happens here, which is that people get told and it's not some horrible thing that they take with them to their grave. They're like, oh yeah, I got told today. All right. Now I know. Yeah. I need to be schooled. I like being schooled. <laughs> Come to Brooklyn. No, yeah. <laughs> well, I get, I get it in LA. I just feel like it, there's more like, you know, street level action in Brooklyn. There's more interaction in Los Angeles. It's there, but we just don't interact as much. Um, well, you know, you're in cars. That's what so I'm that saying. that happens. Yeah, when you're exactly. in cars, what are you going to interact with? Right, exactly. The radio. Exactly. <laughs> the podcast. Um, the podcast. I'm so, sorry, yes. So like, to get back to your childhood, though, and like, which is, you know, and, and to kind of follow the same line that we've been tracing, uh, you know, you said it, when it came to, you know, your becoming a writer, um, you, you know, this sense of otherness and growing up in this kind of you know, being on another planet type town for you, where you were, you look different than a lot of the people in town and you were culturally different. Um, you know, did you get, were you treated well, you know, did you grow up with uh, people being mean to you? Did you have a real strong sense of that? Or was it just in like pockets or, you know, moments? We had both. We had both. I mean, really, really, I would say both. Um, there was general confusion over which kind of Indian I was. So we would have to, you know, explain a lot. No, not not Hopi. No, no, the other the other Indian. Yeah. Um, I think uh, early on, I adopted kind of just ways of dealing with it. I hung out with skaters and I listened to a lot of, you know, early punk, and I just I kind of dissolved into that um, because it was a really good camouflage, among other things. You know, among also being able to like, resist the or have a place to stand within a very um, 
the state was, you know, there was a lot of kind of religion, a lot of Christianity going on when I was growing up. And so to have, and yes, I am Christian, but not, you know, born again. So just to have a kind of stance against that and to also have a place to, to be something other than Indian or not Indian, I went more towards, you know, skating culture and, and so punk you, and just did, that area. Did you skate? Um, I was a terrible skater. I, boy, did I try. Um, no, I ended up being like the girl that sat on the side and smoked cigarettes and, <laughs> and talked a lot. You, you dated uh, the skaters. The skater boys. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm sad, sad to say. Um, but I just want you to know that in secret, I did try, and that's just not my sport. It's not my no, sport. I couldn't do it either. I was too scared of the half pipe. <laughs> that's, I was going to break my neck. Too scared of the fact that you're moving on wheels. Like yeah. clearly, it wasn't the right thing for me. No, um, I, I still, I still. I mean, I've tried. Like, I thought about it. Like I, it was like I don't know. I got a skateboard like ten years ago, and I was like, you know, I'm going to be the adult guy who like skates to the corner store and like gets some exercise and like, like fuck it, you know. There's no age limit, and I tried it for like a week, and I was like, I'm going to kill myself. Like this is scary. Yes, right. <laughs> it's so funny when you have that. When you feel like that, there's some way in which you can master that. And you're like, no, no. Actually, that will just never, I will never be that cool or coordinated. It doesn't happen for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and so you're asking, were we treated well? Yes. Uh, yes and no. I mean, we were treated well. I think the thing that, was, that stood out to me a lot, actually, was that um, being East Indian, because we were so often mistaken for being American Indian, Native American, um, is that I, what I remember understanding at some point pretty early on, and I deal with this in my book, is the idea that there was a good Indian to be and there was a bad Indian to be. And being East Indian put me on the good side. We were the side of the kind of immigrants being welcome into the country as the new doctors and engineers and the, you know, the class that came over in that initial diaspora. And I was really aware, because I grew up in New Mexico, of the land rights battles going on with the Native American culture and the idea that the, the, the other Indians were being chased out of the country while we were being welcomed in. And it's very, very haunting to grow up in that and to understand, you know, that you're kind of in this very, very weird position. Yeah, that I didn't realize that. And then I was also going to ask, like, did you ever like just to either just to fuck with people or if it was like maybe more convenient in the moment, did you ever just be like, yeah, I'm a Hopi. You never did that. No, but you know what I used to do is um, when people would come at me with their mysticism of like, yeah, I really <laughs> love Indian gods. I'd be like, yeah, Vindaloo is great, isn't he? And they'd be like, yeah, Vindaloo. And I'd be like, I know. Oh. oh, my God. What do you think about biryani? And they'd be like, I really like biryani. I think biryani is great. <laughs> this is making me so uncomfortable. I think, and, and <clears throat> I, I have experience, like, you know, like I've done yoga for years and just been around that like i've been around those kinds of people and i you know my hippie background like it's just it's uh it's there that shit happens it's in, it's embarrassing <laughs> you can you can attest to it yeah i like that yes i mean you're talking to a guy who for like two years in college had a free tibet bumper sticker on his car and um i do want tibet <laughs> to be free but i can only <laughs> i can only mock myself i didn't know what the fuck i was even doing it just occur- I just like the Dalai Lama because he was like a non-judgmental religious figurehead who like contrasted. You're like the- he's nice. Yeah, he's, he's nice. A really nice guy. He's a really nice guy. Yeah. Why is anyone fucking with him? Like free Tibet. You exactly. Know? Um, Come on, man. Yeah. So I mean, I'm be- there's I'm somewhat culpable, but at least I figured it out. You know, I think to a large degree. 
And I get the yes. And to be fair, like we're having this conversation, and there are the shades of this that are obnoxious and sad and strained and outdated. Yes, but there's also the the genuine impetus to understand another culture also just can't be underestimated or or so quickly reduced. I'm aware of that. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I'm that that is not without. There's not. I am not immune to the vulnerability that it takes to do that. And also the idea this like simple, stupid human idea that in order to get to know each other, we have to make asks of ourselves. It's, that's how it works. That's how it works. And that's, well, I've got fine. that. I've got that figured out. That's for sure. <laughs> Expert. Uh, so, okay. So you, uh, good student growing up. Um, I was a student that had to work freakishly hard to be a good student. Okay. Um, so I don't know if good is, I don't know if it really qualifies you good. good. You got good grades, though. You did it. Yeah, I got good grades. You know what? I, I was, I was again, like, I was the, the person that was, like, hanging out with the skaters and smoking. But, like, I was the person that was like, oh, you know what? It's, um, I, it's eighth period. I got to go back to eighth period. Like, yeah. I'd be that person who would break up the middle of the day to not go get in trouble. You were like the responsible skater girl, the responsible. It was just, it was torture. It was torture. And I was like a closet smoker. I couldn't stand. I was like, oh my God, I'm just going to do this really quickly in the back alley. Just like, I'm a cool, but like, then I'm going to wash my entire face and my Uh, hands and everything else. Smoking. I used to smoke. It's so, it smells so like shit. It's so disgusting. I don't, you know, like now that I. It is, but it's so much fun. Yeah. I know. And like, this is the thing. I'm the biggest hypocrite. Like I'm disgusted by secondhand smoke. Um, but if it's me, it's like, fine. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, God, that cigarette smells, Lovely. get it out of my face. But then it's like, give me one of those. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. So, it never stops being fun. So, okay. So you, uh, where'd you go to school or did you go to school? Yeah. Um, like for college yeah. that we're talking about. Yeah. How did you get out of yeah, New Mexico? So I went to, well, I kind of made a bit of a mistake for myself, which is that I went to Smith's college first in Massachusetts. Um, what's it called? The Smith College. Oh, Smith. It's yeah, it's an all-women's college. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that was that was not uh, that was not the right fit. Um, <laughs> Why not? I I was yeah because I I grew up with mostly guy friends and an older brother, um, and I and and I think I went because I had this idea that I needed to learn how to be friends with I needed to be surrounded by strong women, which was actually true and good and um i did learn very quickly i did meet some strong women there and i also learned the value of kind of deep female friendships in a in a way that i wasn't totally sure of when i left for smith but well so my mother comes to visit me from a freshman and the reason that i went to smith was because it was the best school i got into my mother comes to visit me and I'm so proud. I'm taking around this New England campus, and I'm feeling all proud of myself. Meanwhile, like stifling down this feeling that I've ended up in a really wrong place. And my mother goes, but "Where are all the people?" And I was like, "No, mom. I mean, it's like you know, it's like a quiet campus. We do a lot of work." And she's like, oh "My God, it's a morgue. You have to get out of here." <laughs> like, oh, mother knows best. And then later we were talking, and she's like, "But this is not for you." And I was like, "I know." I know. Um, it was a. It was not the. It was not the place that I needed to go. Um, By the so way, your, your, your impression of your mother makes her seem very endearing. She seems like a sweet lady. Oh my gosh, she's really endearing. She's yeah. great. She's great. Yeah. Um, she's. You know, my mom was this cool feminist and this kind of politico and intellectual force that ended up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and 
and understood she was from Bombay. She'd grown up in Bombay. So she understood everything that was missing yeah. um, in kind of my equation um, and was trying to kind of give me tons of culture. So, you know, she's amazing. She's very interesting. Um, but, but yeah, so, so she told me to, she told me I should get out. And where'd you go? I went everywhere. I went, I literally went to, I took classes at UNM. I took classes at the UW in Washington. I took, um, then I went to Oberlin in Ohio. When I re-enrolled in school, I went to Oberlin in Ohio and that's where I graduated from. Oberlin. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people who went to Oberlin. It seems like a really good school. It's a great school. Yeah. It's a great school. It was great, especially for the nineties when I was there and this, um, the, you know, the kind of political correctness thing had swept over the campuses. And the, and the weird thing about that is that it was sort of in the interest of facilitating conversation. But what, what happened was the same thing that, you know, that you were just talking about, which makes sense, which is that people got very self-conscious about how they were talking about race to the point that they couldn't talk about it honestly because they were too scared of asking questions. Right, right. And by the time, and, you know, that had happened kind of, it was starting to happen right before I got into college. And then by the time I was there, it was the weirdest thing because you get all these kids coming from everywhere and, you know, all these, you know, cities and suburbs and everywhere, but nobody, everyone kind of understood that if you didn't ask, like if you asked the wrong question, then you would instantly be a racist or a misogynist or, and, you know, a lot of those questions were wrong headed, but, but, you know, they were coming from, a place of genuine curiosity and how to balance those two things was not anything that anyone had worked out. So as a result, campuses were really quiet in the East when I was here. So I went to Smith and then I went to Wesleyan and they just seemed very, very quiet to me in the way that everyone was pretending they knew stuff that they didn't because they were too scared not to. Right. When I got to Oberlin, everybody was talking. Yeah. Everybody was asking the weird questions. People were up in arms about things. They were fighting about things. They were having, you know, big racial battles with each other. They were talking this stuff out, which I just found to be a relief. Yes. Um, well, because I, I do think that like keeping talking is important. I do too. I, I mean, clearly I do the show, but I, it's like, uh, I, you know, I find myself watching social media in a similar way where like, man, somebody says something out of turn or they, they say something wrongheaded, even though it didn't come from a dark place. And th there's just like, they get pilloried, you know, people immediately just <laughs> attack in mass. And I find myself uh, made anxious by that. I think like, Yes, we have to give each other some leniency. You know, you have to give people some 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 slack. You know, in, in order to Absolutely. talk about this stuff. Otherwise, it's you're just going nowhere. You know, if people get pummeled the minute they open their mouths or the minute they say something that is wrongheaded, you know, if people have to have. The well, permission. that's why you know what that to me is. That's I, I agree with you. And that to me is why writers like Roxane Gay or Alexander Chi are really interesting because when they when when you find that then when they respond to things and it's it's really kind of interesting with them they take they're not um they're not coming from a coddling place but they always respond in this very calm way that seems to assume that everybody in the conversation is human and deserves good treatment right and i really admire that i think that is i i find i take a lot of solace in that that there are thinkers out there that are doing this incredible, very strenuous, very hard, you know, hard and heavy lifting in terms of race and sexual orientation and identity. They're doing this very hard work 
but they're doing it in a way that is thoughtful. And it's not coddling, but it's thoughtful. Yeah. And I have a lot of hope when I see that. But I know what you're saying. I think yeah. it is difficult. It is. It's tough. And, you know, I can find myself um, – like as like a either a defense mechanism or maybe just like totally being lazy, just being like, I just don't want anybody to be anything. I hate categorizations. I don't want cultural identifiers. Like I just want everybody to just be people, which is like a really simple. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't want to be Catholic. I don't want to be Italian. I don't want anybody to be Jewish or Indian or anything like we're just all people like just, let's just drop it. And of course that's not going to happen, but. No, I mean, and I think I, I understand what you're saying in that there's, you know, yes, it's frustrating, but it's also the idea of like, right, how do I drop the brown? Right. Like, how does that go away? Yeah. And if I'm not acknowledging it, then why am I not acknowledging it? I totally hear what you're saying. There's just no way out of it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the the way out of it is actually the way that we're going, which is going through it. Yes. And being uncomfortable. Yes. And... <laughs> You know, I think, because I think when I hear that, for me, I think, well, I've been uncomfortable my whole fucking life. Yeah. Like, I have been uncomfortable, whether or not you were aware of it. I have been uncomfortable. So, like, yes, everybody get a little uncomfortable. It's going to be all right. It's going to be like, all right. Like, we're going we're gonna to soldier through. We're going to figure this out. But everybody share a little bit of this uncomfortable, because it's really exhausting holding on to all of it for everybody. I get that. Or, I, you know, I don't get it personally, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> I just see. Do you see yeah. how? Do you see how I just walked into that? Like I could have said, I get that, and then somebody listening can be like, "You don't get that, white man." You know? It's, no. But, but I'm telling. I'm, I'm nicer than that. No, I know, not, not you, <laughs> but I mean, I feel like that, that's the that's the kind of pins and needles that, like, you know, you, you sort of find yourself walking on when you try to talk about this stuff. But um, that's true. I mean, I hear that. I think that is that is true. I guess that's why I was going back to talking about the people. Like, I, I look a lot online for voices of reason that do not back away from their argument, but stay thoughtful in it. Mm. Um, and I think it's really hard increasingly to find those voices. But when, but I also think that the people that have gotten good at, good at that continue to get very good at it. They're becoming adept at this sort of new language, which I appreciate because that's how we evolve. Yeah. You know, that's what it takes. So uh, with you and your writing, and, you know, you get out of college yeah. at Oberlin and then you move from Oberlin to New York. Is that the, is that the path? Yeah. And yep. then, and then uh, I'm, you know, in your bio, I have to ask you about pop-up video just because I'm a huge fan. <laughs> of course. Uh, you wrote, you wrote VH, you wrote on the show or like, did you create the show? I did. Yeah, I did. I was writing that show when I was, yes, uh, when my third job in the city, I think. Okay. That's cool. Writing for VH1. I feel like. Yeah, I, it was I feel, great. I feel like pop-up video sort of presages something about like the digital world or I don't know. Absolutely. You it was know? a zeitgeist, right? It was this idea of, of bite-sized information delivered to make you feel smarter at, while giving you something that you wanted, yeah. um, which I think is what it is all boiled down to, um, you know, kind of the smarter part of content production now that happens on websites is, is, is basically that, well, um, it's it, some form of that, whether it's, you know, Tumblr or anything else. It's this idea that you can both get bite-sized information and and retain it and be smarter. Um, well, and it also which feel, funny about pop-up video. It kind of feels yeah. like, I mean, in retrospect, it kind of feels like like someone was like live tweeting a music video. Absolutely. So it was yes. like, that that that's what I think I was like the parallel that I was if drawing. If only it would have been that easy. My right. God. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> can I tell you that was that was that was an incredibly hard show to write. Which you wouldn't think so, 
because um, it seems like you'd just be, you know, getting high and hanging out and just sort of thinking thoughts and putting them down into little bubbles. But it was really um, measurement and beats and timing um, and understanding how long it takes the eye to process something oh, and yeah. understanding how long it takes the brain to get a joke while reading and taking in all the other visual cues. So it was really, it was really a lot of execution. Um, that, that's interesting. And it was that's good. A, it was a good thing to know how to do. Well, yeah, but no, it was a thing. It's like compression. I mean, compression in and of itself is difficult, like just writing a good tweet, you know, but not only that, but it was a different kind of compression because you had to compress within the context of like visual timing. Absolutely. And yeah. you had to take into account what, what someone could understand visually with information that's spinning around them while their eyes also moving over text. Wow. And that's, that's just a different formula. I mean, they had a basic formula for it, but it wouldn't always work, and you would have to sort of finesse it. And it sounds really funny. It sounds like this ridiculous thing, but at the same time, it taught me a lot about comic timing. Yeah. Um, it taught me a lot specifically about, about writing with comic timing, even though there's not a screen in the back of it, and I didn't have to fight that. It taught me about holding the beats yeah. and holding the beats until everything catches up so that when you release, it's a bigger release. Um, and that was helpful. Well, I should say too, because you know, you guys clearly did a good job because it was a, it was an effortless uh, experience watching the show while high. <laughs> that exactly, and that's what we wanted it that's to be. <laughs> we wanted it to be really good for the stoners. Um, so, and all this, you know, all this time, you moved to Brooklyn with uh, literary uh, ambitions. You, 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 you know, did you land in the city and say, "I want to be an author," and that's why I'm here because publishing is here. Uh, or was it less? Yeah, I landed in the city, and I was like, you know, I'm going to own this town. No, you know what? I came here with the idea that I wanted to write, and the and the I think all the time I have this kind of this idea, which is probably wrong headed, but I but I I kind of sigh all the time about wouldn't it have been amazing to have anyone that had been in sort of any creative field um, in America to tell me how to move forward or what that even looked like. Because yes. uh, I had no idea. Me too. I had no idea. Me too. Um, and I had no, there was nobody that could kind of give me reassurance. There was nobody that could even tell me what that would look like. And I think that's hard enough with writing, but it's really hard when you've got immigrant parents who just can't, who are like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Um, yeah. And that was, you know, that was a little bit hard. So I came here and I kind of figured it out. I think that's, that was, and that's the great thing about New York City is you can figure it out. Um, well, it makes I me came think... here and I was writing, and I had to, you know, compete to get the job on um, for pop-up video, and and then after that, I just started kind of slowly doing the thing that you do when you're young and in the city, which is sort of cracking the code of like how it's going to work for you. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking you were when you were talking about not having kind of anybody to help you. I was just thinking about like this mythical like mentor. You know how some people find yeah. it? You know how some people find it? I'm always like, where the yeah. fuck is my mentor? I want a mentor so bad. Like somebody who's just going to like watch over me like a guardian angel and like tell me what to do. And um, it's a little late for that now, Listen, probably. But I mean, I love that you say that because I just got a question from a blog and it's, I, I, it's also, a, I think it's an English blog. So it might actually just be a function of language. But one of the questions was, what did your apprenticeship in writing look like? And I just, like, I read it and I just burst out laughing. I was like, wait a minute. Is this like, am I like a blacksmith? What, do, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> right. It was a, can I draw this? It would just be like a page just scribbled on, like, you know, like complete chaos. 
Am I learning how to hone the perfect sword? Like, I just was like, I don't know what this means. Like, it came out of another century, in yeah. a way. I was like, oh, my God, I've never heard of this in my life. What is this What is this apprenticeship of what you speak? Um, it's called trial. And how did I not apply for one? Yeah, it's you called know? trial and error. I never had that. I had a buddy. Yeah. I, had, I had a buddy in a totally, like, unrelated field. I mean, he, like, works in, like, finance. But he was at an airport, like, on a business trip and had, like, a layover and sat next to some guy and struck him up, you know, struck up a conversation. And it turns out this guy was like a master of the universe in his field. And they became like buddies to the point where like the guy was like one of his groomsmen in his wedding. And he's an older man. You know what I'm saying? But he might've even been the best man. It was bananas. Like, and this guy's totally like helped him craft his career and he's been a wild success, but it does happen. It just, oh my God. It just didn't happen to us. <laughs> it didn't happen to us. We weren't picked for apprenticeship. Uh, I know. So that's really, but you, but you know, you, you figured it out. And I think people who have the will and who really want to do it, um, will figure it out in some form. And, uh, you know, it, it's a good moment to talk about the want to, um, because you have to, no matter what, whether you have an, a, a mentor or not, like there's going to be the rejection, there's going to be the difficulties financially. There's going to be, um, a lot of resistance as you, as you make your way, like you have to really want to do this in order to deal with all of that. And I think, um, like just having that alone is a huge, a huge advantage. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And you know, what's funny is, um, I think that, you know, I went to, I left pop-up video to go to grad school in writing. Um, where, and at the time I went to the new school. It was a good program. It's a great program for people that, um, that need to be working while they write. It's, right. It was basically like classes that you could take at night um, in a very good program. They had great instructors and, and a really good kind of community. But I I remember at the time, because people, I remember the, the, when I was leaving, people were like, people go to grad school to get jobs like this. And I was like, really? This isn't, this isn't exactly what I was thinking of when I was thinking of writing. Um, but that said, you know, it took a long time to get there. It took a long time to kind of get from what I went to grad school for to actually producing the thing that I wanted, which is this book. Um, like and that how, took, you know, 10 years, 10 years. And like how many, how many full yeah. starts, how many failed manuscripts, how many? No, um, I was just working on this one book the whole time. Um, but what happened in the course of it, which is sort of interesting is so originally when I was writing the book, um, my idea was to, write a father that had some sort of dementia and was receiving from the world. And then what happened in the course of, I was writing it for three years and um, I had this character that I really liked. I had this family that I really liked. And then my father in real life started dying from um, kidney cancer. Ugh, I'm sorry. And yeah. And so um, I was kind of neck deep in the book, kind of halfway through it. And, um, and I, I had just gotten to the part where the father is going to the hospital to figure out what's happening with him. And that's kind of exactly then my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And, and of course, because when someone is diagnosed with cancer, you don't know that they're dying at first because there's so much hope involved. So it took kind of three years to play out and three years of kind of thinking that maybe he would be okay, maybe he'd not. But the entire time that that was happening, I just put the book away um, because I couldn't bear to look at it. Yeah. And well, that's, I mean, that's, you a, know, it's just like one of those weird things. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm terribly sorry about your father and, uh, you know, but I think it's a, 
you know, it's, it's relevant to talk about, um, those kinds of experiences and how they might inform writing. Um, meaning like when you have something heavy in your life, it often figures into your fiction some way, if not like explicitly then implicitly, but having distance from it is often necessary in order to be able to do it. Because if you're trying to engage too soon, it, it doesn't work or it's just intolerable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And actually, you know, what's funny is that way I had this sort of, my husband is a filmmaker and he makes, um, documentaries and we talk a lot about our creative process and in the middle of this whole thing when I just stopped writing there was a point at which I just there were too many hospital rooms and too many hallways and too many tests and too many sad results and I just was shutting down kind of on all cylinders except the one that you just keep relating to your father as a human because no one's treating him like a human anymore and um and it kind of took everything I had to to like be present for that um, and to sort of stay focused on that part of it being important. And I couldn't do any of the emotional work that you need to do when you write. Um, I didn't have any kind of the breath to do that. So, so then I just stopped writing. And, um, did you know that? Did you know funny. that? Did you know that when it was happening? Or no, did you just think, no, I did, did you, you just know think I, that was blocked? Here's what I said. What I did, what I told myself, because I was, re- I was like, this is too similar. I can't write about a father going away while my father is going, seems to be going away. I'm going to put it on hold. And I just kind of told myself that one night after, you know, trying for the fifth month in a row to ram through something. And, um, and then I remember, cause I told my husband the next day and, and, you know, we're big champions of each other as you kind of have to be when you've taken this sort of unconventional life. And it's really, you know, we help each other with the like, no, just keep going, just keep going. You're going to be good. You're going to be fine. <laughs> right, right, right. And, um, and so I told him, I said, you know, I'm not going to work on the book. I've decided to put it away for a while. I just, I just can't, can't write right now. And, uh, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just, I, I have to put it away because I just need to, I can't do it right now. And I couldn't really form many sentences beyond that. And he said, well, that's a mistake. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, that's a mistake. And I said, no, I just, and I said it again in this really, like, it was like, I can't, I can barely speak English. Um, I have to put it away right now. And I just have to believe, I was getting a little more desperate every time I said it. I was like, I just have to believe that I, it's going to be okay. And that I'm going to be okay. And I'll come back to it when I'm ready, but I have to believe I'm okay. And he said, he's like, well, I don't know you're going to be okay. I mean, I don't know that you're going to just get it done. I mean, if you just leave it, what's that going to mean? And I, just, I remember because I just yelled, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and it was funny because it was one of those times when actually someone just, he was he was doing the thing that, that we had done for each other, which is a very sweet thing, which is like loving someone through their doubt right. and helping them believe in themselves. And he was kind of, he was on that track. That was the, that was the track that we had kind of tested with each other. And it was a good one. It was one that solved a lot of problems. Um, and it was usually very helpful. And it just, it was like, I don't have room for that track anymore. Even I don't have room for the, just keep, go- there is no, just keep going. Right. There is no, just keep going. Right. And, um, and I remember, cause when I, when I yelled, what are you doing? He just, he got this really stricken look on his face and he was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm out. And <laughs> I had to go to work and he had to go to work and we're not like send each other flowers in the middle of the day kind of people. Like that's just not the, our vibe. And, um, and I actually did, he sent me flowers in the middle of the day, Aww. which was, which was a really, and he was like, he's like, I get it. I, I get it. It was just a really nice note inside. It was like, I get it. And I'm sorry I said that. And you're right. You're going to pick it up. Um, 
which is funny because then the thing that ended up happening, which is also interesting just in terms of my creative process, and, and I've always thought of it as this kind of counterpoint to to that part of our trajectory through it as creative, as a kind of creative um, couple dealing with each other's stuff, is uh, is then later when I went back to the book, I kind of did this weird thing, which is three years later, or, you know, actually six years since um, I had kind of put it away. My dad died over three years, and then it took me... And, you know, and then I started working on it. Um, and I started writing the father, but every time I wrote him, I kept giving him my dad's mannerisms and I knew that it was, I was like, that's the wrong thing to do. Don't do that. That's weird. But every time I did it, I felt like, Oh, that feels really good. (laughs) Yeah. That feels really good. And, um, and then I just kept, and I, and so I came home one day and I, said to my husband, like, I'm blowing it. This is terrible. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm ruining the book because I keep writing my dad into it. And, um, and he said, so what's wrong with that? And I said, no, because it's against the rules. You don't do that. You don't, you don't write about somebody who's real in your life. You know, I had a character and it's not the character anymore. It's just now it's like this, this weird amalgam of this character that does, that has my dad's way of moving across the room and my dad's and he said, well, what's wrong with that? Why don't you just do that? And whose rules are these? And it was a really nice thing to say, actually. It was a really kind thing to say because it let me do this thing that I really needed to do, which was say goodbye on my own terms. It let me live, you know, with my dad for another three years while I finished writing the book. That's sweet. I, I feel like I want your husband to help me, <laughs> like with my wife. Yeah, no, he's, he's available. He can um, send me flowers. Yeah, for a small fee. Mm-hmm. He, can, he can consult me. For but... a small fee, he too... <laughs> can uh cheer you on and make sense of your chaos yes well but it's you know that's uh that's lovely to have somebody who understands even though he's a filmmaker and you're you know writing fiction you know creatives are creatives and people who are telling stories are telling stories whatever the 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 media you know and um to have somebody that understands and can give you kind of informed advice and and perspective is that's a that's awesome yeah and i think it's really important to have somebody that understands you know, now we've, uh, you know, we've, it's been 14 years, so now we've gone through a lot of different processes together. But I think for me, the thing that's been really um, helpful and important is understanding that the creative process, it doesn't work the same way every time. You know, yeah. it always looks different. And right. having somebody that gets that, that there is no, there is no, let's do this and it will all just work out. Like you just got to muck your way through. Um, and having someone that kind of gets that is really, really helpful. And let's plug your husband while while we're on the show. Like, what, what's his? Uh, Why not? Yeah, let's give him a, give him <laughs> my a little. My husband, um, my husband Jed Rothstein. He um, he makes uh, harrowing, beautiful documentaries. Um, his last was about the revolution in Egypt. Um, the one before that was called Killing in the Name. It was uh, nominated what? for an Oscar. And the one that he's working on currently. Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. So let's all talk about the one that he's working on currently. Okay, but did he do the one? <laughs> did he do the one on Netflix, The Square? Was that the one? No, he didn't do The Square. He did um, Before the Spring, After the Fall. Okay, cool. I love documentary film, so I'll check it out. Um, and okay. then The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, like you know, it's a decade-long process. Um, you know, when it find when you finally got the manuscript done, the the sale of the manuscript, the getting of an agent, all that kind of stuff. Like, how did that go for you? Well, so I had an agent. Um, I had an agent because I had written a book for Kenneth Cole, oddly oh, right. enough. Yeah. And um, 
And so I had the same agent who had been kind of keeping tabs on this book forever and believed in it from the start. Um, so I did not have to get an agent. The other great thing about my agent is that uh, she, so I, you know, the, the reason that the book ended up getting done, I was working on it at nights from 11 to 1, and I was working um, as a, a deputy editor on a website, and the website was bought, and I went into work one day expecting to be at work all day and was informed that I was being replaced by five social media interns. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, that thing. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, so then I, like, go out on the street, and I'm crying, and uh, and I kind of, I basically, it was really shocking. I had a kid. I still have a kid. Um, wasn't sure how we were going to pay the bills. And then what we ended up agreeing upon, um, Jed and I, is that I should just, um, they gave me a couple months severance and I should just try to finish the novel um, until like until the severance ran out. So I basically wrote the last quarter of the book with this sort of, you know, monetary gun to my head, which is this idea of like, it's now or never. It's now or never. You got to do it. That's not the worst thing and, in the world. Um, no, it was great. It was great. I highly recommend it. I, I hope that I can. I, I would pay someone to recreate that situation for me. Right. Um, no, it was actually great, and it was great because I was so pissed. I was so mad um, about what had happened that it was great because every time I felt angry, I just thought, "I'm gonna go write the book," and I and I would. <laughs> writing with <laughs> like fury. revenge writing. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, and it's worked out for you. I mean, the book found a home. You're, yeah. I mean, it's like it's in print at Random House. I mean, it was great. You know, I mean, the great thing about that situation is it really was a bit of a dream. It was a once in a lifetime thing. And I, and I know that, um, I understand that now, but the, the process of putting it up and having as much interest as we did and, and you go to getting it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it was really, you know, it was a dream. It was a dream having it, having it go to auction and having it sell in all the countries. It was just, it was, it was a very, very strange um, and beautiful moment and a huge relief, actually, wow. just a huge sort of seismic relief because we had run right up against the end of the severance and I was not sure what I was going to do after that. Not that not that it's like, oh, you never have to work again, um, because as you know, that's just not true of being a fiction writer. But there was a seismic relief in knowing that I had gotten something out that I desperately been trying to get out for years. Yeah. Well, I uh, I congratulate you. That's awesome, and it feels like that's a you know a not uncommon story that people tend to get that break or finish that book when you know right at the precipice. You know, <laughs> like uh, yeah. it sort of yeah. it sort of sucks that it takes that sometimes, but it it takes that sometimes. It seems like. I mean, I don't know how. I I still don't know. I mean, I was writing that book forever and it wasn't that I wasn't writing and it wasn't that I wasn't spending every spare second I had on it, but it's hard. You have a small kid, you have a job that's online that takes you from eight in the morning till, you know, basically like 10 at night Oof. with a two hour break somewhere in there to eat and feed your kid and put them to bed. And there's, there is very little brain power left. I would sit on my couch and fall asleep over my keyboard. And I think that a lot of people are doing that. Sure. You know, I think that's, and, and I don't and know how you're supposed and they're to. Not, they're not even writing books, <laughs> just at home. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they're just shopping for shoes. They're watching porn, just nodding <laughs> off. Imagine. It's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. So, um, <laughs> tragedy is a national tragedy. <laughs> it really yeah. is. Um, I have had such a great time talking with you. I appreciate your patience, in, especially at the start of the show, uh, answering all of my questions. 
and uh, you know taking me through the whole India thing. And I'm very uh, happy for you with all the success that you've had with your book. And uh, I wish you well on whatever's next. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. Okay, there we go, folks. That is Mira Jacob. Go get her debut novel. It is called The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, available now from Random House. You can find Mira online at mirajacob.com. She's on Facebook, and her Twitter handle is at mirajacob. Uh, I can be awkward. Let me just put that on the table. I'm an awkward man at times. I'm working on it. Uh, thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This show has its own official app, the Other People app. It's available wherever apps are available. It's free. Go get it. It's the best way to listen. You get the app. It's on your device. Uh, when you open the app, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you. And then if you want to stream uh, the full archives, all 300 and uh, some odd episodes, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very easy. It's very cheap. Uh, it's a great way to support the cause. So go do that if you were so inclined. I would appreciate it. Uh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Sing my praises. Or, or uh, you know, uh, obliterate me with vicious criticism. Either way, letters at otherppl.com. And, you know, I don't want to overstate my Ebola paranoia. It's like it's also flu season. It's just on your brain. It's just like, oh God, is this really happening? It's so awful. These pictures from Africa are just so awful. As if hand sanitizer is gonna is gonna save me. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. That's how I respond to a crisis with some Purell. Please remember that Simone de Beauvoir died of pneumonia and that Rembrandt's father was a corn miller. That's it for now. Thanks again to Mira Jacob. Go get her book. Uh, support her cause. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back again soon. Stay well. Email me. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Let's, uh, let's try to, you know, make some good news in the world. There's a lot of shitty news. In my own little universe, I'm going to try to make some good news. I realize that sounds corny. But, you know, that's where I'm at right now. I'm a little rattled. Rattled. <laughs>